A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And we're all about the rock and roll today. Right after the much anticipated Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. I hope you're doing well. Uh, everybody out there is doing well. Hey, listen, this man, he walks into a funeral. And he goes up to the wife and he says, do you mind if I say, say a few words? No. She's like, no, that would be really nice. He gets up on the podium and he says, bargain. And the wife says, thank you. That means a great deal. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, that was a good one. Guff, Duff is always delivering the goods on Friday like he always does. And Guns N' Roses will be bringing it to you on the road all summer long. They're hitting the Middle East, Europe, and North America. Dates start June 1st in Abu Dhabi, if you happen to be around. Uh, and Fozzie is less than two weeks away from the start of our spring tour. We kick things off March 23rd in Bloomington, Indiana. We're rolling through April 17th. 15 shows total. Lots of them sold out already. Pittsburgh sold out. Uh, Flint sold out. Columbus is about to sell out if it hasn't already. Full itinerary at FozzyRock.com. Come rock with the Foz. Come to the VIP meet and greet, one of the best in the biz. We will meet you, take pics with you, sign autographs, play a private sound check for you. Go to FozzyRock.com and we'll see you on the road. Lots of the VIP packages also sold out. So once again, all that information for you at FozzyRock.com. All right. Chris Jericho's Rockin' Wrestling Rager at Sea, The Five Alive, sold out in less than a month, coming up January 26th of 2024. But we just finished up the Four Leaf Clover, and we've got another live podcast from the Jericho Cruise. This one is the evolution of 80s heavy metal, and it's a who's who of that era. We've got my brother, good friend, Rudy Sarzo, who was on board playing uh, with Quiet Riot. Uh, I got to sing Metal Health with Quiet Riot, and Rudy played Crazy Train with Fozzie, which was amazing. Uh, Rudy also played with Whitesnake, Dio, uh, so many other bands. The Guess Who, 
uh, Malmsteen, the list goes on and on and on. PJ Farley from Fozzie and Trickster, and John and Mark Gallagher, former, one of my all time favorite bands, and one of the bands that stole the show on the cruise, Raven. Everyone was on the ship in January. Everyone played great sets, had great crowds. And you know, we've always got amazing music and podcasts on the ship. Uh, so we had that as well. The evolution of 80s heavy metal. Raven were pioneers of the British heavy metal scene, the new wave of British heavy metal. They talk about uh, coming up when punk had taken over Europe. They had to come to America to find real success. John and Mark from Raven talk about Johnny Z and Marsha Z from Megaforce Records. Uh, and of course, the last band Johnny Z ever signed was Fozzie. Uh, it changed their lives as it changed ours. They remember their first ever tour where a little band called Metallica opened for them. They tell some great stories about that tour and about recently opening for Metallica at the Hard Rock Live in Fort Lauderdale uh, just a few months ago. PJ talks about Trickster getting started in the late 80s just as grunge was coming to the forefront of music. He explained what it was like to get his first gold record at the age of 17 and to basically experience this mind-blowing success out of the gate with Trickster and how it was gone so quick when grunge hit just over a year and a half later rudy's got great stories about joining ozzy's solo band with his friend randy rhodes playing with kevin dubrow and frankie benally and quiet riot when the band was still called dubrow he remembers making the legendary metal health album and how that studio experience prompted him to quit ozzy's band to join up with kevin and frankie the whirlwind ride they had with quiet riot so many great stories uh, also about randy rhodes his close friend this is a great night. We had a great time on the Jericho Cruise Four Leaf Clover. So let's get to it. The evolution of 80s heavy metal with PJ Farley, John and Mark Gallagher, and the legendary Rudy Sarzo right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. All right, guys, how's it going? We did a great podcast last year uh, with Striper in this room. It's a great room. We're happy that you guys showed up. And I wanted to talk about heavy metal uh, in the 80s, basically. And we've got three eras of 80s heavy metal uh, rockers here. We've got John and Mark Gallagher from Raven. Hey. we got Rudy Sarzo over here from every, every band. <laughs> Every band in the 80s, Quiet Riot, Ozzy, Whitesnake, Dio, you name it, he was in it. I think he was in uh, Kaja Gugu and Aha for a while as well. And then we got PJ Farley uh, from Fozzy, but he was in Trickster and is in Trickster. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of talk with you guys about, I mean, obviously we can start with Mark and John because you guys were pioneers of the new wave of British heavy metal, which was kind of the beginning of kind of modern-day heavy metal that we know to this day. So late 70s, early 80s, that time frame? I thought yeah. you were going to say we were young. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very long time ago. Oh, I'm spilling water all over myself. Oh. It's okay, it's my cruise. <laughs> do what I want. You're having a good time. Yeah, exactly. At least it's, not, it's, not even, it's not even vodka yet. But. So tell us about that. When you guys first started, what kind of bands were you listening to because uh, you were very fast, very almost thrashy at that time frame. But where, how did it all kind of begin for you guys? Well, we started, we formed the band in 1974. So this is our 49th year as a band. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Kicking ass. <laughs> so, yeah, we are old bastards. But there yeah, you go. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were listening to 
I mean, the, the, the bands we really were into as kids then was Slade and Sweet and Gary Glitter and all that stuff, because that's what was on the television and on the radio. And as we ran into older people and our taste broadened, we got into Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, blah, blah, blah and went to see almost every band we possibly could, because that was our education. There were no instructional videos or YouTube or any of that. We went and watched the bands and saw what was good and what was bad and tried to learn from that. Uh, and went through drummers like toilet paper until <laughs> we hit up with a guy called Rob Hunter in 1980 and started as a three-piece. And then we you know, somehow looked into a, a recording contract and it just went ba-boom from there on in. And Rudy, obviously, you were with Quiet Riot very early on in the 70s. Um, but kind of talk about, I guess one, the Quiet Riot was almost, kind of almost a Slade type of a glammy type band in, in, the, in the mid, late 70s as well. Not exactly heavy metal per se. Uh, well, actually, Kevin hated Slade. <laughs> well, you could tell. Well, this is what happened. Kevin was a photographer before he, you know, he became a singer in Quiet Riot. So Slade happened to tour with every single band that would come through L.A. So here's like, you know, Slade opening up for Yes or Slade opening up for Humble Pie and Slade. And so he said, I've seen these guys enough times. I'm sick of them, you know. <laughs> And I, you know, the irony is, is that, you know, we got to record, come and feel the noise, you know, and then Mama were crazy now after that. But it, it wasn't really that he hated the band the way they sounded. He just hated the fact that they got around a lot, you know, on tour. They really tour America a lot, you know. Tell us how you left Quiet Riot to go to Ozzy because you were gone for a few years. Ozzy was basically your first major gig. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. Well, what happened was that I, I, I joined Quiet Riot in 1978, then Randy left the band to join Ozzy in 1979, then they recorded Blizzard and Diary of a Madman, then they, were, they got Tommy Aldrich you know, to start the 1981 American tour, Blizzard of Oz, and they were looking for, for a, uh, a bass player, and Randy, his reference was me. He didn't know it really. He hadn't played besides Kelly Garney, and I, we were the only bass players he had played with in L.A. And they were looking for a bass player in L.A. So Randy kept telling them, you know, you should give Rudy a call. And they called me, and that's how I got the gig. So, um, and then PJ, of course, because we were talking about metal, I want to talk about how big it got in the 80s for a while. PJ, you kind of came in at the end of the 80s with Trickster when the scene was changing to not be as heavy and was getting more into grungy-type stuff. So you guys were just at the very last wave of, of the big years of heavy metal. Yeah, we might take some of that blame. <laughs> we say, I always say Nirvana and Grunge took our flannels and hung us with them. <laughs> You're out. I'll take that shirt. But Yeah, where's Grunge now? Yeah, that's right. Really? Not on this cruise. <laughs> they can't hang. They need a metal passport. <laughs> But talk about you guys, uh, Mark and John, when you started yeah. making inroads. Um, when Raven became a, a band in England, started getting some some growth. Yeah. Then you start coming over to the states. Yeah, I mean, you know, we come from that time, the late '70s. Punk rock was big in England, so we're kind of used to being like not the flavor of the month, if you know what I'm saying. 
And then it was kind of weird. We started playing in, uh, in the U.S. And like metal was taken off. I guess the, all these different names for metal, but they started to call it hair metal, especially in the, on the West Coast. And uh, there were so many bands popping up and being very successful. So we were kind of like, you know, in between this kind of underground and this uh, more on the heavier side. We kind of cross over on a lot of different things. So it was kind of cool, but um, it was a big eye opener when we first came to the States. I mean, you talk about uh, we were kind of a little green, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> and uh, we're traveling around and doing stuff. And uh, our first major tour of the States, we took a, a little band called Metallica out as our opening act, which was like four scrawny kids. You know what I mean? We had to drag them out of bed to make sure we got to the next gig. I remember dragging Kirk uh, Hammett down the stairs and his head was bopping off the concrete <laughs> stairs. And he wore like the same, he had the, uh, a Mickey Mouse shirt, which he wore for the entire tour. It must have stunk like a, I don't know. But um, yeah, we got some cra crazy stories, but um, there's like a, a, a constant uh, turmoil of, of different styles of metal. Like you got new metal, you got, you know, this, uh, even like grunge was metal to a certain extent, but um, there's only one true thing, and that's good music. It's not necessarily what style it is. It's just got to be good, right? Like this guy. Right? Now, Rudy, talk a little bit about touring with Ozzy, what it was like back at that time, because this is when Ozzy leaves Sabbath. He's starting out solo. Uh, kind of all the marbles... Uh, like he really has to really make it big at this point in time. It's like this is his last chance, I think, at this point to really you know stay in the game and, and get to the status that he's at now. Yeah, and there was so much uh, county. Uh, you know, the record company was the same as the uh, the management company. Uh, Don Arden, you probably heard of him. Yes, Don Arden. Oh my God, he used to hang people out of windows. Have you ever yeah, seen yeah, yeah. the Sopranos? <laughs> yeah, I'm not Don Arden was Tony Soprano. You could ask Gary Moore if he was still alive. He would tell you some stories. Boy, that whole well, family. Well, Don, you know, I mean, I, this is at a time when Sharon was just our manager, you know, or or actually representing Don, her dad on the road with us, you know, and Ozzy was married to a lady named Thelma. As a matter of fact, people ask, ask me, what does S-A-T-O mean, you know, from the, uh, from the Diary of Amendment? And, and Ozzy told me, it's Sharon, Adrian, which is the guy that Sharon was going out with, Thelma and Ozzy. There you go. <laughs> so these were simpler times, you know, Sharon was the manager, Ozzy was the artist, and we were the band. And, uh, they, uh, uh, the family, the Arden family, they put a lot of money behind it because uh, the, the American label epic really did not know what to make of Ozzy, you know, but they really believed in him. So they, uh, they put, they, they mortgaged their mansion and put a lot of money behind it, you know, Jet Records. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the management and the record company. And... So they really believed in, in him, and um, Sharon was there to make sure that Ozzy delivered <laughs> every night. Yeah, she's a taskmaster, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. 
Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. EJ, you uh, had a gold record when you were still a teenager. Talk about uh, starting off at the top. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess guilty as charged there. I mean, I was 17 years old. I think so. Uh, I was, you got a gold record at 17. I was... Yay! Yeah, I think I was, I was 15 or 16 when we signed with MCA Records, and uh, my mother had to sign the deal with me. And Steve's parents had to sign, cool. co-sign the deal, too, because he was only 17, I think. So, yeah, we, uh, we had a big following in Jersey in the underage circuit. You know, the good kind of underage circuit. Um, we, we, were, we were bringing all the young girls to the clubs, but we were young boys, so it was all good. Um, so we somehow started a really good buzz just playing high schools and, you know, the all-ages places. And we got a deal, and, you know, that was a time where things were happening fast. It was like, here we go. We have the wheel. Get on, and you're going. Off you go. We got a deal. We got put on tour. We got put on MTV, and... Off she went. So, I mean, yeah, we were lucky. You know, and as quick as we went up, we went down. <laughs> so, and, but we were, we had good heads on our shoulders. We, we knew that, like, all right, we're spinning right now, but this thing's going to stop. So let's just have a good time while we're here. So we always kind of, although we were young and cocky, we were very realistic. I think that's just the jersey in us. You know, Great. keeping it real and grounded. Like, hey, we always used to say we're we're one bed song away from working at a Seven Eleven, and uh, <laughs> and we scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so it kept me grounded, though. That's for sure. That's cool. But yeah, and then I the first record went gold, and um, it was it was surreal. I mean, it was something that I always envisioned. So when it as it was happening, it was just it felt right. I'm like, well, here's my gold record. Thank you. <laughs> cocky little shit and, uh, but that's how hyper focused we all were you know it was no um, we didn't not work for it we definitely meant everything that we did and it was very organic and I think that's the thing that people related to Trickster in the sense that we were we kind of bridged that gap between you know the hair metal and the grunge because we came out in flannel shirts and ripped jeans dirty white Reeboks and you know, that was just us. So, but we came out in the tail end of the hair metal thing, so we got lumped into that side. But yeah, I wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, at that time in my life in particular, I couldn't have wanted anything more to happen than right. I was so hungry for it. So when it came, I was just, I was all in. You know, I didn't have any bills. I didn't have any family. I, I was all in. So, I mean, I think about it now, like, man, what if I was like 35 and that happened? I'm like, I got on a tour bus for 13 months right when we went on a tour. It's like, see you later, adios. Like, I don't know yeah. if it would have been that easy and enjoyable as it was when I was 17, 18. So um, it was a good start. So, uh, and, and talking about tour buses, and Mark mentioned the tour with Metallica, you guys weren't in a tour bus for that uh, at all, were you? Were you traveling in? That was a six-berth Winnebago. <laughs> and two box trucks yeah, we had and that. after Cliff took number two in the Winnebago and ripped the door <laughs> off we decided to travel most of the time in the back of the truck 
And everybody on that tour that we had, the three things, three trucks, and the white truck, when people went around and said, do you, have the, uh, do you have the keys to the white truck? That usually meant somebody was going to get lucky, and they were trying to get the, because there was a mattress in the back of the white truck. John, John, so do you have the there. keys to the white truck? Yeah. Is that Lars? Yes, Lars, I do. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And the funny thing is, we, we just played with them recently, and that story came up individually off all three of them. Yeah. <laughs> Did they ask you for the keys? Yeah. yeah. The keys to the white still truck. wanted the keys. Yeah. Hey, John, you have the keys to the truck. Got to go to the side of the truck. Mm. You got it. <laughs> uh, Rudy, let's talk a little about Randy Rhodes. Obviously, one of the all-time great guitar yes. players. Yes. Uh, one of the most influential to this day. Uh, what was it like playing with Randy? Because you had a great relationship with him. Yeah, he had a huge impact on me. Uh, something that I carry with me even today. Uh, musical integrity. He was born into a musical family, his mom and dad, mu music professors. They have, still, the family has the uh, Musonia, which is a music school in North Hollywood, in California. And um, Randy was a musician, you know, sight reading, playing classical, even before he, he joined a rock band as a kid. He was in a jazz band, and so, his level of musical integrity was like nothing I ever experienced before. And I learned that. Then once he joined Ozzy, he just took it to a whole different level. You know, his musical integrity went as far as actually quitting Ozzy because the record company uh, told Ozzy, okay, you, got, you, know, you have to go in and record Speak of the Devil, which is the Black Sabbath re-recordings that we did at the Ritz. And, uh, and Randy refused to do it. He says, I'm not doing it. Mm. Yeah, I've given you Blizzard of Oz and I've given you Diary of a Madman. I'm not going to also do it a, a cover album, you know, right. Black Sabbath songs, you know. Right. That's not what, what I want my career to be like. So, so he gave notice that he was going to leave the band, That's you cool. know. Before he passed away. Before he passed away. Well, really? Yeah. 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 Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and that's one sad element into the, the mix of, of him passing that they were working it out, Ozzy and, and Randy, but it was not finalized. Right. Working out him leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's something that, that Ozzy has been dealing with ever since, you know, for the last 40, 40 plus years since Randy passed. I could add something about Randy. We uh, did the uh, Blizzard of Oz tour. I think we did like six shows in England, right, John? Four. We did Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, and the Hammersmith Odeon. And he, Good memory. I was going to oh, say. Yeah. yeah. He knows. I did go to him. Memorable shows. But uh, uh, Randy used to just play a guitar all day. Yeah. He would have a little amp, and he would set mm. up somewhere, like mm. away from the dressing rooms, maybe in a hall somewhere, and he'd just play very quiet guy, but uh, he was very, um, I mean, he was locked in. There was not, you know, I mean, he had a purpose and he was really locked into it. And uh, I can't say enough about him. He was very nice to us out of all them people that we, when we toured with him back then. Yeah. But yeah, I've got to say, cool. for a guy that's such a brilliant guitar player, I did see him screw up Iron Man on one of the shows. And that gave me a lot of hope. So that was <laughs> yeah. What did he do? He screwed up? Da, 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 da. 
<laughs> which, well, of course, happens to us all. He wasn't very keen about playing the Black Sabbath song no, at all. No. You know, at all. No, you know no. live, you know, when we were... We, we, yeah, we did a medley of uh, Iron Man and Children of the Grave into Paranoid, yeah. and he wasn't very keen about that. I, I, I would like to add to what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I can't recall... Randy not having a guitar yeah. with him, you know, and I'll go as far as when he got the uh, the new best guitar player award uh, from Guitar Player Magazine in and it was December 30th backstage of 1981 backstage at the Cow Palace. He received the award and you know back you know 40 40 years ago we didn't have social media. You have no idea if anybody really cares about what you're doing. You just do it, you know. Then all of a sudden he gets this award and he realizes that people are listening and appreciating what he's doing. So now it's like a whole new level of commitment to what he's doing. So from that point on, on the Diary of a Madman tour, he started taking, well, you're uh, uh, signing up for lessons at every city we played at. We would get off the yeah. bus, breakfast time, you know, we would drive all through the night from the last gig, show up to in the next town, get off the bus, go have breakfast, and pull out the yellow pages. And since his family has a, uh, a music school, he figured, well, the school with the biggest ad, or music store with the biggest ad, I'm gonna go for that one because that's gotta be the most successful one, cool. and they probably have the best teacher. But most of the time, he would wind up teaching the teacher <laughs> and paying for the lesson. <laughs> Some racket. How important was uh, Randy to Ozzy's success as a solo artist? Well, I mean, if you listen to any Ozzy Osbourne record after Randy passed away, that's, that's the answer right there. You know? Yeah. And Ozzy obviously knew that. He was probably very much, uh, Randy was probably his, his partner in a lot of different ways. Yes. Yeah, Ozzy loved Randy. They were, they were family. Absolutely. So PJ, you mentioned as a teenager, uh, gold record, but you also, one of your first tours, I believe, was with Kiss. Um, first tours were actually Striper, Don Dockin, Scorpions. Kiss was later on the second record. Okay, but the, the and Scorpions as well. well. Tell us what it was like kind of going from, you know, Parsippany, New Jersey, wherever the hell it is, <laughs> going on tour with these arena bands, and you're still a teenager. Um, yeah, it goes back to that initial thing where it was like, we were ready for it. Every show we did... Even before we got signed, in our heads, it was the Garden or the Meadowlands Arena in New Jersey where we grew up. And, um, you know, it all happened so fast. We went on tour. It was like, okay, your record's done. It's coming out here. Your video's out. Get on the bus. Here's a, two weeks of headlining club shows. We got a week into that. They're like, turn the bus around. You're going out with Striper. And then right from there, we went right to Don Dockin's solo, uh, solo tour. And then right from there, we went to Poison. Uh, those were our first arena shows. And I, I mean, I think it was uh, Flesh and Blood for Poison. So they were at their, you know, their zenith, if you will. And uh, so that was like, for us, it happened. It was like, we have dates, arenas, boom. And then that was a short tour. We only did like not even two weeks with them. But before we even got on the road with them, we got the Scorpions tour lined up right behind it. And then the last night of the Poison Tour, Brett and Cece call us into the dressing room. They're like, have, come here, have dinner with us. They sit us down, we're in the dressing room. like, all right, you like that steak? What's it going to take to make it blow off that Scorpion store and stay with us? So we're like, 
Come on. I mean, because that was a fun tour, and we knew we had our work cut out for us going out with the Scorpions. A band like Trickster, you know, young, cute kids, you know, we knew what we were throwing ourselves into. So Poison, we went out on stage. It was ah, right off the bat, girls screaming. It was like taking candy from a baby. But Scorpions, it was going to be a little bit tougher for us. But we were psyched for that. We were up for the challenge. And, uh, you know, it was kind of tough to tell Brett, sorry, man, we got to go. But also we had, uh, Poison was just finishing their tour, so they were kind of circling uh, those tertiary, like third kind of markets as Scorpions were doing New York, L.A., doing the whole thing, hometown arena. It was like, I don't know, Brett. Playing the Meadowlands, you know. Um, so we stuck to our guns, and uh, we did the Scorpions tour. And as expected, you know, it wasn't the same reaction when it came out every night. You know, they were sitting, they were arms crossed, and they were, you know, waiting to be, you know, we had to earn it. And we loved it because we, we, for the most part, pretty, you know, we did. Um, it was. It was a challenge. I mean, yeah, the Poison tour was great, but like I said, it was... It was easy. It was so much fun because it was easy. But this was, again, it was a grounding, humbling moment. It kept us, you know, uh, just not carried away. And it said, all right, look, every night, go back to zero. You know, these people, we got to prove it to them that we're not just some, you know, cute little fabricated band. So I think that was a really important tour for us, Scorpions. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. There's a, a famous show, Mark and John, um, I believe it's at Roseland Ballroom in New York, uh, Anthrax, Metallica, and Raven. And all three of you guys, as a result of that night, signed with major labels. Yeah. So kind of, uh, what do you remember about that night? That was a crazy night. That was, uh, I mean, at the time back then, me and Mark were married, Rob had a steady girlfriend. They all came over to America and fired us. <laughs> That night, say, <laughs> like, we're done. You guys have been away for 18 months. Enough. See yeah. you. You're gone. We're divorcing you. Getting rid of you. So that kind of had us a little fired up. And then somebody stole one of Mark's guitars off stage three minutes before we went on. Yeah. Um, Remember that? Wow. I tore a door off the wall because that was like time. the was, final straw. There was a lot of tours before that. I think we just finished touring with uh, Anthrax had opened up for us. Yeah. And it was the same management uh, who was, I don't know if you're familiar with Johnny Z and uh, oh, Marsha. Yeah. yeah, Johnny and Marsha. God rest us all. Johnny just passed away recently and we did a tribute show with Metallica to Johnny Z and Marsha. They kind of took, I mean, they took all these bands into the house. Like a little house in New Jersey, and they made these bands into something. It was pretty, pretty special time. It was like bizarre. Like Johnny Z was like brilliant and crazy at the same time. I remember he was up in the in the middle of the night making phone calls, and he'd say, "Listen, man, this is the best band," and they'd be like, "Hey, hey, this is it's like four o'clock in the morning here. Can you call me tomorrow? What the hell's going on?" 
he was just a nutcase, but he got, he got shit done. And uh, he was kind of, in all three of them bands, Raven, Metallica, Anthrax was very in, influential. And I remember that show, the, the other bands didn't do so good. They had a bad night for whatever reason, sound or some technical problems. And it was a good show for us, but it was, it was like everybody came out of the woodwork for that show. And like you said, these bands got signed. Now, one of this, the stories, the, um, uh, the band, the company that signed Metallica? Electra. The boss of Electra is called yeah. Bob Krasnow. And this is one of these apocryphal stories, which is probably not true, but it's pretty funny. So Krasnow comes to the show, and he's gone, piss drunk. He sees us, and oh, guys are fantastic, I want to sign them, sign them. So, you know, Michael Lalago wants to sign Metallica. So, brings Metallica to the offices the week later, and Krasnow looks at them and goes, I thought there was only three of you. <laughs> Pretty so funny. kind of weird. So we ended up with Atlantic, which is a whole story in itself. I mean, Atlantic was like, like a horrible place to be signed, pretty much. They didn't know what to do with a band from England that was kind of like underground heavy metal and, you know, speed metal or whatever. They didn't, they, they didn't understand it. That time, everything was changing real quick. So uh, I think Metallica had the same problems with that label, too, that they were with. And... Uh, you know, everybody went on, did pretty good, but it's just, uh, it's fantastic that it was all at one, like all went through one bottleneck, if you want, you know. Yeah, it was unheard of. It was like a 3,500 seat venue in Manhattan with three unsane bands and it was completely sold out. That never happened. Yeah. Yo, so all you guys get together like, hey, that's it. Come on, we're all getting signed tonight. Yeah. That yeah, never happens. Let's talk about uh, Quiet Riot when you return after, after Randy passes and you, and you left Ozzy. Because you told me before you couldn't play in that band without Randy. Yeah, I, I lost the joy of playing. You know, I was just basically surviving each show. And one of the things that I learned about Randy, that, you know, he was going through that, you know, musical integrity. You have to make a decision. If you're not pleased with what you're doing, you have to move on and find what really is in your heart. And... I, uh, I was getting ready to go on the, uh, to New York to record the Speak of the Devil record live at the Ritz. And this time we have Brad Gillis on guitar and yeah. Tommy Aldridge and of course Ozzy. And I get a call from Kevin Dubrow. Now, I used to, when, when Randy left Choir Riot, Kevin put together a band called Dubrow. And so many people went through it, including myself. I was playing with him in Dubrow right before I joined Ozzy. I was living with Kevin. So one of the songs that we used to play live was Thunderbird, which he wrote for Randy when he left Quiet Riot. So he calls me up and says, hey man, you know, we're in the studio and there's a possible record deal here. Well, how would you like to come down and just, you know, guest on Thunderbird? And I go, yeah, sure, I'll come down. And as a matter of fact, my, my gear was on the way to New York, so I brought my practice bass. It was like a bass synthesizer, Roland. 40-year-old, you know, technology. <laughs> yeah, you know. And, uh, and it, which sounded really good for, the, for Thunderbird, you know, had a chorusing effect, and I thought I was just going to play one song. So there is Frankie, who I had started playing with 10 years before. I met him on my birthday, 1972, November 18th, and we started playing immediately. 
And so we had been struggling. We left Florida about the same time. We moved to the Chicago area. We started playing all the bars around the Midwest, wind up in LA. We lived together, we starved together, and you know, we had this history of trying to survive. And finally, here we are in the studio together recording a song. We didn't know what was gonna happen with it, but you know, this is it. And then there's Kevin, who I already play with him in Quiet Riot and live with him and play with him in Dubrow. And Carlos, who I had never met before, Carlos Cavazzo, but he was part of the circuit, you know, in LA. And uh, so we, we, in two passes, we did Thunderbird. So they go, well, we got a few hours left on the session. Do you remember Slick Black Cadillac? That's the only song from the Randy Rose era that made it to the Metal Health record. And uh, if you look at the back of the record, it says dedicated to the memory of Randy Rhodes from the very first pressing, you know, so that was what the whole thing was about. So uh, it felt good, you know, to be back with my family again, you know, Frankie and, and Kevin. And, and so, you know, we got, by the time I left that session, I must have done like f at least four songs for, the, for the, um, what became known as the Mental Health Record. The band was still called Dubrow. I was just guesting on it, you know. And then I went over to New York, recorded Speak of the Devil, but it's still lingering how good it felt to, uh, to be playing with Frankie and Kevin. So I came back to LA and made the toughest decision I ever made, which was to leave Ozzy, because they took great care of me. They were wonderful to me, but I, I needed to get the joy of playing again. And there was no guarantee. There wasn't even a guarantee that, you know, because it was a production deal. So I came back and then they finalized the deal with Epic and we signed and 40 years later, here we are. It came out 40 years ago, yeah. Wow. And Quiet Riot just blew up huge after Metal Health. Oh man, we, we were on a tour bus for a year and a half opening up for Scorpions, then we followed that followed by the US Festival, and then we went with ZZ Top, Lover Boy. We got kicked off the Lover Boy tour. Yes. Yeah, we did. It's like a badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> so we got kicked off, and then our agency scrambled to put together us as a headliner. Now the problem is you only have one record. You got 40 minutes of music and you're wow. headlining, but then you know we had uh, Queensryche, that was their, they were on their Queen of the Reich EP. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. we started touring with them. And another band, I think it was Axe or Kick Axe. I always get confused. Kick Axe. It was a Kick Axe, there you go. And uh, so we did that for like six weeks. We, uh, <laughs> there was one show in particular. I had just played the Marcus Square Arena in Indianapolis the year before with Ozzy. And I knew what a massive venue was. So the agency goes, oh yeah, we just booked you guys there. And you go, are you crazy? It's like 20,000 people and they go, yeah, that's okay, we're gonna put a curtain and we're gonna sell the first you know, few thousand seats. The curtain kept moving. By the time we did the gig, actually with Nazareth opening up, we sold in the round. Wow. I was just amazing, you know? But that was the, the, the kind of role that we were on thanks to MTV, which is the reason why in our uh, opening intro, before we go on, we play just a little bit of the MTV theme song. <laughs> I said, thank you. Why'd you get yeah. kicked off the Loverboy tour? I'm sorry? Why did you get kicked off the Loverboy tour? Uh, 
Frank, t- two words, Frankie and Kevin. Last three words. <laughs> they were on a roll, I'm telling you. That's cool. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. DJ, tell us uh, what some of your experiences in, in opening for KISS, because obviously that was kind of a dream gig for, for everybody, I would say. Yeah, I mean, definitely for Steve and myself, that was like the, you know, that was the dream. You know, opening for KISS, I mean... I don't know, anybody I know had that dream. <laughs> that was the circle I keep. So I remember the day getting that call that we were going to tour with Kiss. We were in L.A. Uh, about to mix our second record, and our manager called and said we got the Kiss tour. And again, we're going back to the Meadowlands Arena, playing all these arenas that we did the year before. And um, But this time... I mean, we loved the Scorpions. Growing up Scorpions, it was amazing. But Kiss was the... That was it for us, you know? Um, so that was a moment. And uh, I'll never forget walking into the arena that first day and just seeing all the Kiss road cases. Like, we're here. And, uh, you know, you fall right back into that little kid, that little seven, year, seven or eight-year-old kid, you know, and you're drawn on your face and drawn on your notebook and writing the KISS logo on everything you owned and didn't own. And um, it's just amazing, you know, hanging out with those guys, some not so much, <laughs> but hey. some of them. And, hey. Uh, hey. But, uh, yeah, it was great. That was just, the extent of his experiences with Paul Stanley backstage. Yeah, I think I got, I think I got a hey twice. Three months. Uh, so I'm happy with that. <laughs> But it was a dream come true. John and and Mark as well, you guys mentioned signing with Atlantic. It was interesting as a Raven fan, because I got into Raven with Live at the Inferno and All for One. And then Stay Hard comes out, which is still an amazing title for a record. Stay stay hard, stay wet, stay hungry. Words to live by. It's a real wrestling. (laughs) But, But Atlantic, they... They had a little bit of a, of a change for you guys. You guys had wearing eyeliner. Uh, it was kind of almost like a little bit more of a corporate type raven. H- how was that for you guys signing with the big leagues and then they've kind of changing you a bit? Well, actually, the back cover of that record, that's all airbrushed because whatever crude attempts at makeup we were using was more like a footballer with like black yeah, eyes and that. we used to put the black, you know, for like the football players, we used to put that on. Yeah, yeah, we didn't yeah. have to put eyeliner I on. I mean, even the me? point where they had a helmet and it's, it's typed, wacko. Right. It's their drummer, wacko. On the the worst Photoshop of all time. Uh, the record was actually done before we got signed. Uh, it's just that we had some shittier songs and we took them off because initially the record was going to be to get off the indie label we were on in England. Yeah, it was supposed to be a throwaway record. That yeah, literally. And we said, oops, yeah. Atlantic won us. Uh, let's ditch these four songs and put the good ones <laughs> yeah. back in. And da, 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 da. But the next record was very much pressure from the record company and the management who were leaning on the producer, Eddie Kramer. And it was just like, 
uh, do another track of guitar here, but do a little cleaner, and we'll just put it in the mix. And well, you got <laughs> to remember, we, you know, we were like starving, and then we signed to this major label, and then we're paying this guy forty grand. We're playing this, you know, studio thirty thousand dollars or whatever, and then we're walking to the store because we didn't have a car. It was like it was the craziest shit ever, and uh, we finally went. What the? F I mean, we. At least get us a car or something we can get to somewhere. <laughs> and um, we were like, uh, we were held captive, I guess, by the label. I don't know if you guys experience this kind of thing. It's almost like you have to go to them to get anything. Yeah. And uh, very hard for, you know, we were trying to keep to our, like, to our guns. And I think we did that to a certain extent. I mean, there was some, some stuff we put out that was a little kind of commercial, but... Um, We've always had melodies in our songs. We're not like trying to change, but we thought, fuck it, we're just gonna go out and kick ass anyway. We don't care. <laughs> and our shows, our live shows were always good, always good and all crazy, same shit. And uh, still is, but um, it was just a weird time. I just remember thinking, we're really doing good, but I don't have a penny to my name. <laughs> this is bizarre. <laughs> I don't have any clothes. I got everything I got is in one case. And uh, we were totally, like you were saying, we were totally in. We were completely locked into it and um i think just the atlantic was just a crazy place we'd go there i remember seeing um uh, peter frampton in the hallway and he looked totally pissed off <laughs> and i said robert talking to him and i said what did he say and he goes he goes he's trying to get out of his deal he can't i mean they don't even know what to do with him here's a guy from the 70s that was really popular and he's now with his label and the, and we found out much later, the la the, all the people from the label were on drugs and like completely f***ed up. It was crazy. It was like we, we joined like the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. It was, <laughs> it was insane. The record company scenes in uh, Spinal Tap, yeah. absolutely Atlantic Records. Publicist Bobby Fleckman. Oh yeah. Absolutely. It's crazy. But, but she was a lot smarter. She knew what was going on. These other people were just, ah, yes, it's so good to meet you. Ah. Oh. Horrible. So they made us wear the studded dog collar and the red nose and the you know the clown shoes, and you know do a do more commercial album and then it's like you want to do an, uh, a video? No, no video. Oh, so kind of coitus interrupt us and we just said to hell with you. We regrouped. We did an EP which was a lot more in our hearts, you know, more what what we were supposed to be doing. And the following album was even way heavier, and they didn't know what to do with us. So after that, we just agreed to part and get the hell out of it. I mean, we just found out the music business is just bullshit. We'd rather hang out with you. We'd rather hang out with them idiots. Ain't that the truth? Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever experience anything like that in any of your bands, Rudy, with kind of record companies being bullshit? Yeah. Yeah, but but you know, like let's say in the case of Ozzy, the management and the label was the same thing. So you can't you couldn't get away from it. You know, it jet rec jet records and jet management, and I think the agency had something to do with uh, with Don. You know, and it was like okay, this you know, there's no place to go. This this is it. Uh, with Quiet Riot, it was it was a big team. We had a separate agency, and, and our, we, we had to beg the, uh, the guy who became our manager, who was a former musician, Warren Edner, he was a guitar player with uh, the Grassroots. 
and he was one of the, the original Quiet Riot, Randy Rose era manager, he had retired. And we took him to the 1983 NAMM show just to show him that guys with long hair, you know, not new wave, not punk, were still around. And, yeah. and, and there was like, oh, you mean there's interest in yeah. your type of music? And we say, yes, and this is where the record already mastered, ready to be released. So we begged him, and he became our manager, and there you go. <laughs> How was it for you, PJ, talking about record companies when you mentioned them the first record is gold, and then suddenly you're making your second record, and that's when, you, like you said, they are taking the flannel and basically hanging you with it. Yeah. Did you see a difference in attitude from the record company? Yeah, I mean, it's... You, we saw the writing on the wall right away. We checked the forecast, like, we're going out on tour with Kiss, or hang on, guys. And literally, our record came out the first, maybe the first day of that tour. And we were really excited, made this great record that we thought, you know, and going on tour with Kiss, we are flying high. And we go to radio for the first single, and you know, we were kind of obsessed with how many ads did we get? How many ads at radio? How many radio station ads did we, you know, acquire this week? You know, did we get 30? Did we 40? What did we get? And every day, the reports weren't good. It was, it happened so quick. They were like, well, none. Everyone was just changing their formats because the grunge cloud was coming in. And so we're so happy to be on tour with Kiss, but getting bad news every single day. And the label, you know, I mean, yeah, the label's attitude clearly changed because we, we were dropped, month, you know, inside of a year after that record came out. And, um, you know, we didn't really fight it either. We were just like, ah, again, this much smarts we had, but it kept us grounded and prepared. We didn't go kicking and screaming. We're like, we get it. You know, we had a great time. And... Uh, there's uh, the writings on the wall, so it's it's just time. Let's uh, just try to keep our heads together and um, stay productive, you know. But as far as the label, they dropped us right before we were going to Japan for the first time. It, that's right. <laughs> well said. But I will I will give them this. We were so psyched to go to Japan, and they still let us go to Japan. Paid for that, which is not cheap. So. And we did great in Japan. <laughs> Such a bummer. We're like, do did you want to drop pay, us now? Did they pay to bring you back? <laughs> At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. What was the biggest tour you guys did in the States? Did you, did you go? I can't remember if you went out or who you went out we with. We did six states with Judas Priest okay. on the Turbo Tour. Yeah, that was pretty much the that was, thing. That, that, was, that goes back to the same thing. You know, there was, back in them days, there was a huge emphasis on radio, which doesn't really exist anymore. You had to have so many 
so many ads, ads or yeah. stations yeah. to be at a certain level. And that's how you would get, um, you would be able to get on tours, like some of these opening tours and stuff like these bigger bands, Kiss, whatever. And um, I remember that we were, uh, you know, and a lot of these labels, they can make shit happen because it's, it, it's all, they're all about money. They're not about music at all. It was all about making money. So, for instance, we were, I think we were at like 20 stations and we needed to be at 25 to continue the tour. So we basically told them flat, we had a meeting with one of the local representatives, I think it was in the Southwest. And we said, we need to be at 25, you know, um, radio or playlists, otherwise we're gonna get dropped off this tour. And, then, and we were playing with Priest, and that was one of our favorite bands at the time. And um, the tour was very successful, and we were doing very good on the tour, and they, they loved us, they gave us carte blanche, they gave us flowers. We had like orchids in our dressing room, we're like, what the hell? <laughs> it was kind of bizarre. And then they were like, this is, a, uh, this is some, uh, some you know, English beer, like you like, you know, and stuff, like what? But anyway, the, um, along the shores, the Atlantic didn't come up with the, uh, the stuff. They didn't know what to do with us, basically, so. I think we got stiffed a little bit on that, we didn't do the rest of that tour, but that was our biggest tour. We played like the, a lot of the uh, big venues that were sold out, Salt Palace and places like that, and did very good on it. But uh, that whole business, I think, is completely changed now. It really kind of got picked up and thrown down and, and trashed. I don't, I'm, basically, most of them labels aren't really the, the, like a shadow of the former self, which well, I'm kind of happy about, to tell you the truth. The, one of the main issues was when we signed with Atlantic, it's like, hey, great big rail company, we want the best agency. And we signed with an agency called Premier Talent. Uh, the main guy, Frank Barcelona, you know, did The Who, Journey, and no other heavy metal bands. I mean, they had Judas Priest. And that's how we got Judas Priest. ICM, I believe it was, was the main agency. And they were pissed off that we hadn't signed with them. Therefore, they wouldn't let us open for any of the bands. Yeah. So we had to leave Premier Talent and go cap in hand to ICM, which is how we did the last tour on the Atlantic record, which was with Wasp and Slayer. And, you know, it's like the spinal tap thing. You got Wasp and Slayer and we're in the middle, like lukewarm water or whatever. Yeah, it was a really weird. <laughs> It was an extremely weird um, tour. They were like throwing stuff at Wasp, the kids, and then they, they weren't sure about us. It was just a bizarre kind of well, thing. Well, we'd come on, we had this song called Overload, which was a break, like a minute in, and it got a and we'd throw the guitars down, and I'd climb over the barrier and stand on the barrier. All right, I'll take every one of you motherfuckers. On one at a time, you bastards! Yeah, we spent the, we spent the whole tour fighting with the audience. It was fucking awesome. And they'd back off because before that, during the minute, it was nine volt batteries and glasses and oh, I mean, it was crazy. from these specky little fourteen year old twats, you know. You know, and Slayer were kind of blowing up at the time, and, and, and Wasp had this really kind of strange show where they had like confetti bombs at the end. It was really kind of odd. Like Busby Berkeley or something. I don't know. It was kind of odd. I saw that tour. I think you it was did. a one-off. Did you guys do a one-off with them? No, it we was, did the no, whole thing. The thing they it, had, it was the live from the electric circus. So they had yeah. the four twelves with animal skin, and they had like a little fence around them, like they were in zoo cages. Yeah, it was bizarre. <laughs> I don't know. There was a place called the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. That yes. I, yeah, I was there. Yeah. I saw Rudy there too. You gotta tell him your story about I Rudy. I will. So this is a place, when I was 
God, 12, 11, 12 years old, I would tell my mother, I was sleeping over Joey's house, and Joey would tell his mother he's sleeping over PJ's house, and we'd take two buses <laughs> into a shitty part of town, Passaic, and sleep outside the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, overnight. Like, I got kids now. I'm like, what? What? Holy shit. I think the music business has changed. Um, so, and we got our Wasp tickets, and Raven opened. And I don't think Slayer was on the bill. I think it was just Wasp headlining. Just yeah. And um, that was amazing. It was an f- amazing show. But that was like my go-to place. And I saw Quiet Riot in, I think it was December 94. And I had pictures 84. I brought with me, actually. I found my photo albums. I'm like, oh, my God, look at this. This is a great podcast for me. I'm, I'm loving this. Um, and I was, I think, 12 years old. And I always used to have this thing. Lights go down, boom, I'm right in the front row. I'm crawling under seats. See you later. No one's stopping this 12-year-old little squid. You know, I'm like, excuse me, I'm looking for my dad. You know, I was by myself. So I'm crawling under seats, you know, in and out of, you know, butts and elbows in my face. And I find my way front row all the time. So now I find myself, I'm actually kneeling on the subwoofers right in front of Rudy. And we're rocking out. And, you know, I'm a kid, so I have gumballs, right? And I'm gumballs. Right? Rudy comes down right in front of me. He's playing, doing this. Right? And I'm like, I'm like, he's like, no, no, no. I'm like, no, watch. It's, it's not drugs. Watch. And I ate one. He goes, oh, okay. I took a gumball and I put a gumball in his mouth. I shit you not. I'm like, it's my gumball. <laughs> Capital Theater, Passaic, New Jersey. That was a win for me. It's not drugs. <laughs> oh my god! So I'm gonna give you a gumball tomorrow. Did Did you have a habit of accepting gumballs from kids back then? Rudy? Uh, no, but you know, it's it's. I'm a fan too, you know, so I get it. I I, you know, I I, I geek out myself, and you know, John Five has a story. I, I I used to play with Johnny when he was 19 years old, before he, he had a number attached to his name, you know? <laughs> yeah. Before the father. Yeah. yeah John Larry is his, uh, you know, yeah. birth name. And uh, uh, we had a band called Sun King. We got signed to, uh, to uh, Giant Records, well, well, uh, Irving Azov, and all of that. And then grunge happened. <laughs> so I know what you're talking about. Okay. And uh, so Johnny tells me, you know what? That time that you play at Joe Lewis Arena, you gave me your bandana. And he still had it <laughs> when I played with him. Cool. Yeah, of course he still has it. Later. <laughs> Rudy, you played with so many great bands. And, and um, White Snake obviously was, was, was a great one. It's interesting because Ozzy was kind of more street and Quiet Riot was kind of a, a street look. Then you're in White Snake, and now you've got blonde hair, and you've got puffy shirts, and like, kind of what was that like playing with, with, with another legend, with David Coverdale? What, did, what, what kind of his rules to play with him? Well, uh, you know, White Snake was the opening band for Quiet Riot in 1984. Yeah. So when, uh, originally, Tommy and I, we were asked in 1985 to join the band, but I knew about the friction going on, um, especially between, you know, everybody knows about this, John Sykes and Coverdale, right? right? Yeah. John Sykes was still there, and I'm going, I just left a situation, I don't want to join another situation, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to pass on this, you know. A um, couple of years later, John was gone, and we got the call from John Kolatner 
for Tommy and I to go in and, re and do the video for Still of the Night. And by then, you know, we have been looking, Tommy and I, for, for a singer of that caliber of Cloverdale, you know, and so we went in to do the, uh, the video and there was Adrian and, and Vivian Campbell and we got along great and we decided right there, yes, let's do this. Adrian already had played on Here I Go Again. So he was committed, but not the rest of us, and, that, and that's when we became a band. Uh, as far as my blonde hair, I was bored. I started putting sun in. <laughs> that's, that's what it was, and still the night, sun in. Okay, if you look at the still the night video, we, we kind of look more street than we do in Here I Go Again, because uh, there, was a, uh, there is a stylist and designer named Fleur. Yeah. You know Fleur, okay, and she came to my house and she did the same thing with the other guys. You know, they went to their hotels and their homes, went through the suitcase, she went through my closet and say, okay, bring this stuff here. And that was my outfit. Whatever she found in the closet that was gonna be a cohesive look with the other guys. By the time that we did Here I Go Again and, and Is This Love, back to back, like one day one and then the following day the other one with Marty Colner, uh, we were already a band, and she had designed all these outfits for me, you know, and for everybody else in the band. That's why there was a certain look, yeah. and here I go again. But, but uh, still, the night is really street, you know. Yeah. yeah. It was like an all-star band almost at that point in time, like a super group. Hey, it was just a bunch of guys that, re that we were veterans of other situations and we just, we were really grateful to be playing together, mm. you know, great band. Well, yeah. we know a lot of the same people, John Sykes. Mm. <laughs> we used to, me and John Sykes used to hang out back in England. He was at a, uh, joined a band called Tigers of Pang Tang. And um, it was like their second album, like a reboot of the band. And he was like a hi-hat gun, really good guitar player and everything. Nice guy, so we hit it off, so we used to go out drinking together. But the guy was like out of his mind. I mean, he'd go over and this, I don't know what it's so much in the States, but in England, he would go up and just drink other people's drinks. <laughs> I goes, what the f***? You can't do that. We're going to get killed. And I, I drug him out of so many bars, like by his neck and like other guys trying to kill him. I mean, yeah. I was like, and then he would call me up and go, hey, you want to go? I goes, no, I got something I got to do. Sorry. <laughs> my John Sykes story. <laughs> Last few things, guys. Uh, playing as a trio, you mentioned. How is that? Like, uh, Obviously, most bands have two guitars. There's a five-piece. There's a four-piece. As, 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 is it ch more challenging as a three-piece playing heavy metal? Yeah, more challenging, but more rewarding. There's uh, most you know, real estate to work with, but there's no safety net. Usually, with two guitar bands, you know, somebody breaks a string. You know, the guy stops playing. And if you notice, it always sounds better. Yeah. When we toured uh, with Slayer, you know, the guy would bring us over the monitor board. He goes, okay, here's Kerry. And here's Jeff. Here's Kerry and Jeff. Space. And then one of them would break a string. It would sound amazing. And then they'd fix it. And so that was like validation of what we'd done. Once we came to a three-piece, Mark's playing blossomed like a thousand percent in a week. And I was like, oh, I can do all these fills. And Rob, the original drummer back then, was like, oh, I, I can do all these fills. And, you know, drummers and bass players have to have that locked in ESP thing. 
like we've got with Mike. I mean, it's, you know, it's something you can't teach. It's something you can't force. It's either yeah. there or it's not. I like the, um, just having the one guitar, the drums, the uh, bass separate. You know, it's kind of like you, got, like you guys and you have the singer, but it's like the who, you know what I mean? It just has a certain power to it. I kind of really describe it. And I, and I still love two guitar bands, Thin Lizzy, uh, Judas Priest, Fozzie, yeah. <laughs> Kick-Ass. You know, that's still good. It's just a little... It's gonna. You have to be really, you know, conscious to, to pull that off good. You know what I mean? Maybe that's why they call it a power trio. Yeah. That's right, power trio. So you know, and it goes back to the early days, Cream and bands like that. So uh, we kind of love it, and um, we have fun with it. We like it. So, so yeah. Rudy, uh, you mentioned the US Festival. Just quickly, what was that like with three hundred fifty thousand? What people? was it like? What a, oh what a day! Okay. Uh, <laughs> by then, I already have been playing with Ozzy, so we've done some some festivals. Uh, Port Vale being one of them, Day on the Green, another one at the Oakland Stadium. And so, you know, I've, I have been there. Not 350,000, but to be honest with you, the first, you know, the first 200,000, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it could have been a million people, it didn't matter, you know. So it was like, okay, been here, done that. What happened was that uh, we had just, okay, how we got the US Festival was because uh, we had been touring with Scorpions and we shared the same agency. So, I, uh, you know, yeah. And so they, they were doing a warm-up tour, like a couple of weeks leading up to the US Festival because they had been in the studio recording. So the, our, our agency put us on that tour and we did a Winnebago bid. You know, that was our first tour after the record came out. And... Um, so we are the final day of that tour, Scorpion and us, we're playing in Denver. Now, Barry Fay, the promoter, the, the you know, Fay line in Denver, was also responsible for the roster of the US Festival. So he was, you know, he, that was his gig. He sees us, we get off the stage, come, he comes into our dressing room and says, hey guys, I'm Barry Fay, I'm the promoter. I'm, I'm also, you know, I, I'm doing the, uh, the US Festival. And I go, what's that? He goes, I have been on the road. I have, you know, I wasn't paying attention. And he goes, well, it's this show that we're doing with all these people. And, and he says, if we just move Joe Welsh from the metal day to the pop day, and we have an opening, do you guys want to do it? And we said, yes right there on the spot. And then we have to figure out how we're gonna do logistics because our gear had to go to the following gig after the US Festival. And we didn't have a crew. They drove in trucks, like, you know, the U-Hold back in the day, you, oh, yeah. you brought everything with you. And so they went to the next city. We had our, our tour manager and our manager who knew nothing really about setting up being roadies, you know. So they became our roadies. And everybody was freaking out because there's 350,000 people out there and they would go on stage and come back with their hearts beating so really fast. And, and it's the last, the last thing you want to hear from, from your guys is like, oh my God, look at all the people out there. You know, you just want to be cool and do, do your show. So we had to rent gear. Everything that, and what happened was we were at last minute addition. So all the good gear from SIR, which 40 years ago, that was the only thing that was available to rent from, was gone. So we had to call friends around. I called the guy who I knew had a back line. And anyways, my, that back line, bass back line shows up. It doesn't work. Oh. Fortunately, 
uh, Tasco was doing the uh, the monitors, and the, those, that's where our crew from Aussie. So I knew all the guys, and they said, "Don't worry, mate. I'll take care of you." So I my base actually went through the monitor system, and I'm talking about huge towers of you know and wedges. So that was okay, but it didn't sound like an amp. It just sounded like me plugging direct into oh, the monitors. Right. Yeah. I, I, it's like you know what? I deal with it. I just went on, and so. Back in the 40 years ago, technology was such that our tuner had a, it was like a tuning fork, like boo, and you can go boo, and Kevin had a frequency that resonated with him. It happened to be 432. Now, we have no idea back then, you know, anything about 432. All I know is that, like, yeah, Kevin said, that's the frequency, so we all tune to that. So we have... Uh, twin tuners, one on Carlos's side, one on my side. So we tune, and I told my tour manager, who was playing roadie that day, says, okay, be careful, don't knock this knob off. You know, just put it behind my amp. I'll tune it myself during Carlos's guitar solo, which after the solo, you have come and feel the noise and bang your head. Okay, so here comes the guitar solo. I go back, the thing is just the calibration. It's just completely to one side, I'm going, oh God, okay. I think it's, it's around here somewhere, okay. So I knew I was out of tune. This is like in right. you know, summertime in, L in California and it was like a, you know, 150 degrees out there. You know? So I had to tune anyway. So okay, I tune my bass and I come back out. And if you guys listen to this on YouTube, I'm completely out of tune. I'm in tune with myself, but not with Carlos. And it's like this, cursing effect that you hear. I have no idea how Kevin was able to sing those two songs. Yeah, yeah. So that's what happened. Now, Chris, you coming up, you must have seen the US Festival footage, the metal day, right? Yeah, yeah. What was your take on that? Well, I, mean, well, we were, I was just a kid. I was probably 13 or just seeing the size of it. And the yeah. thing that bothered me is I wanted to watch the whole thing. Because right. they showed they a, only showed a, a They only showed a couple songs. Yeah. But then there used to be this place in Japan called Airs which was uh, a bootleg. Yes. Yes, and they had everybody's full set. So yeah. I got, every, and now Quiet Riot's released that. Yeah. And, and I had Priest, I had Triumph, uh, Scorpions and Van Halen. Yeah. Scorpions stole the show that day. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, killed yeah, Van Halen. Yeah, yeah. They well, did, yeah. so. Uh, last question for you guys, PJ, and for all you guys. What's your favorite song uh, to play live um, from all the songs that you've had? PJ for Trickster. Um... I mean, I'll go with the obvious and, you know, Give It To Me Good was our first single and our biggest single and it, it did it all for us. So it, it just makes the place happy. Makes us happy. Yeah. John? How about you, John? Well, we really like all the shit we do, but uh, <laughs> I think twinkle, we twinkle. really enjoy playing faster than the speed of light, especially now that Mike's with us because it really is faster than the speed of light. <laughs> it's a dream. Mark, I, well, I would have to agree. You know, I like I like the heavy stuff, but that I just for some reason that song is a weird song, and I just love playing it live. So I would have to agree, actually. Rudy, I mean, okay, I, you know, I'm one of those guys that I look at the, uh, the set as one continuous song, and, but I think the one that really resonates the most with the audience is Metal Hell. And I get to play upside down, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. That was a blast. Thank you, guys.